I think part of the problem is going to, you know, that, that needs to be sort of solved is separating opinion from news. Um, and I know that sounds sort of obvious and on the nose, but like that, that's sort of where the soul went wrong. You know, we had a lot of, a lot of young people come up thinking that journalism is actually like activism and journalism is advocacy and it's using your platform to say something and it's trying to make a difference. And, and it's actually none of those things. And actually it's antithetical to any of those things. So I think that our very concept of what news is has, has been damaged. Jane Ferguson, welcome to the the Civil Podcast. Thank you for being here. Delighted to be here. Uh, I mean, you are. It, it really is a pleasure. You you and I have been to a lot of the same places. Interestingly enough, um, around the world on different sides. Me when I was at the, in the Marines or CIA, and then you covering these wars. Mm-hmm. Um, you've been and you've. I mean, a storied career as a war correspondent from Al Jazeera to PBS. You've been for the New Yorker. Um, and recently published a memoir, which, you know, we'd love to talk about also. Uh, but I wonder if you could just give me a little bit about where you're calling in from and what you're doing now. I'm calling in from uh, lower Manhattan in the middle of a snowstorm here. I moved to New York in 2020. So I continued traveling out from here as a reporter. But I've taken a fair bit of time off now where I wrote that book. And uh, I teach uh, journalism at, at Princeton University. Um, I'm staying on as a fellow, but I'm I'm largely in New York City now, kind of trying to somehow divorce myself from from war reporting. Um, so uh, I feel like this is a this is a pretty good place to reinvent. You know, I something that Susan, Suzanne, who you know, our co-founder, mm-hmm. um, you know, something that she and I have talked a lot about. That's more the farther away I get from the government, and the CIA, the more interesting I think it is how much I've connected with war, with journalists who've been mm. in a lot of the same places. Yeah. Um, and it's interesting, you know, because I reading your work, something that struck me was um, in your book, you talk about in Mogadishu, how you were basically watching someone starve to death in a hospital and how you, I know you've talked a lot about this and I hate to make you rehash stories you've told before, but, mm-hmm. but I wanted to, you know, I, I wanted to talk a little bit about like your sense of you know, helplessness then, but then what, what really matters and, and what did you take away from that? Because you and I both really believe that stories really, really matter. And I think that's part of the conclusion you came to, but I wanted to hear about that. You know, I was on the road covering some pretty grim stuff, you know, dangerous things, and also just really, really sort of tragic reality of life uh, situations at a pretty young age. And it was partly because I wasn't very successful. It was partly because, you know, I didn't go to a very fancy college or get snapped up by a network early on. So I was part of this generation that kind of, you know, graduated into the middle of the financial crisis didn't have anything else I wanted to do. This is all I'd ever wanted to do since I was a little girl. So I wasn't going to give up. So I, I, you know, we, we all went off and freelanced and freelancing meant that very inexperienced, very young, we were thrown into places like Mog where, you know, it should have been more veteran type, you know, amazing reporters. Um, so I'm, you know, 25 uh, and, you know, I'm I'm watching people die, which is totally normal for those who go into military service and armed service at much, much younger than 25. They deal with life and death. For me, 
it was it was entering hospitals where you know i mean th- at the time you had mostly ugandan african union peacekeepers who had taken over the base that that the americans ha- had 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 uh, been you know operating in until the black hawk down incident um the african union peacekeepers had kind of come back in taken over the base and occasionally like once a week they might open the hospital for uh, civilians to come in because they would have particularly good doctors and they could come in and get some, some medical treatment and maybe some drugs that that they couldn't otherwise get in Mogadishu. So it was a massive eye opener for me. You know, I was this kiddo who had grown up with these really romantic notions of what my career would be like. And also kind of perhaps there was a sense of vanity about the reporting and how important journalism is and truth to power and blah, blah, blah. But the reality of being there in the in that moment is is an extraordinary amount of um of intrusion. And I think you're also faced with, and throughout the book, I talk about this a fair bit, you're faced with a constant, hopefully, if you're self-aware, kind of struggle, uh, you know, recognition of the tightrope that you're walking between trying to do good in the world, but also having professional ambition. And, you know, the latter can feel very ugly when you're standing in a, in a, hospital ward filming a kid who's now, you know, in in their last moments, a baby. And so I struggled with that for the first time when I was in that hospital ward. I thought, why am I here? Am I helping at all? You know, I'm essentially intruding. How how helpful is this? And is this just a sort of voyeurism? You know, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm selling my work to CNN. I certainly hope it makes a difference. But I'm also a person who chose to be here for for self-interest as well, because I want to do this work. So all of those really complicated, big, heavy topics are kind of rushing around in my mind while I'm 25 and also kind of exhausted and hungry and a bit scared. Yeah, uh, that is a lot. Where did you, so you grew up in rural Northern Ireland. How did you get from rural Northern Ireland to Mogadishu? Well, I was born in basically, I always describe it as like the last Protestant, very ardently loyalist to British rule uh, village uh, just before you got to South Armagh. And South Armagh was called bandit country throughout the 70s and 80s and 90s because it was it was a real IRA heartland. I mean, I was born in 84. So uh, it, at, at the time, you know, the, the violence was such that the British army in those rural areas, because it was a small farm, it was, you know, I mean, it was outside a village. The the British army actually stopped transporting troops via road because the number of ambushes had been so successful wow. against them. So they only choppered. So, the, so you know, Sh- Chinook helicopters were were sort of like a, in the air all the time. And, and it was very, very militarized area. But of course, when you're a kid, you know, everything is normal. You don't really realize. I remember the first time I ever went to England, and they realized that the cops, this is obviously well pre 9-11, didn't carry guns, like big automatic weapons, you know. And I I thought it was very strange that the army didn't have checkpoints up in the street. And so, you know, but it wasn't, you know, I don't say any of that to to describe it as this incredibly violent childhood, because the reality is that whenever you're living in a place where there's an insurgency, um, uh, there's you're very rarely present for the violence. You see it on the on the news. You hear it. I mean, they used to blow up the the village police station all the time or courthouse. That was a big one um, in Armagh. But like, 
it's sort of lurking out there and you're kind of living in this interesting sectarian divide. And I was always, I write about this, that like the war was a little bit of a secret whereby families didn't talk about, you know, when you've got very divided sectarian communities, like you must never tell anybody if you have a, a member of a family who's in the military and you must never talk about, you know, certain things because you don't know who's listening. And I just remember that the IRA were always these bad men who were out there in the hills. And there was this like wild mystery to them. And they were the bogeymen. Um, and I was fascinated. And, and the, you know, I know that it's 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 pretty wild that it took me so long to look back and realize, actually, it's, it's interesting that I spent most of my career covering insurgencies and really, really trying to spend time with them. Um, and I was fascinated uh, by the whole thing. And I think the secrecy of it, the fact that we then all watched the evening news every night, like the voice of God, you know, and and it was also a pretty patriarchal place. Like I didn't really have any female professional role models at all. I didn't know any women with, you know, big, interesting jobs, frankly. Um, and I but on the on the evening news, the BBC had you know, they had um, quite a few female anchors in the studio, but also, you know, their 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 chief female foreign correspondent, you know, Kate Aidy, used to travel all over the world. And I just, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd such wanderlust and I just wanted to to travel and um, and ask a lot of questions that that, you know, you weren't really allowed to ask in Northern Ireland. So um, I couldn't believe it. I mean, I would turn on the TV and she'd be all over the world. And it just seemed like an incredible job. So I, I, I think I decided very early on that that was for me. Where, where'd you go after Somalia? What was your track? Well, I was living in Dubai, so I would bounce around. I did quite a bit of Somalia and Yemen because I was really covering. This was before the Arab Spring. So I was at the time covering uh, the, sort of like the offshoots, the Al-Qaeda franchises that were really trying to pop up. Because the big sexy stories in Kabul and Beirut and, and Baghdad, like the big stories that all the, the more senior correspondents were covering, were kind of covered. So I was always kind of looking around the edges of what I could be additive for. So I, I did a little bit of work in uh, in Sudan, um, and I covered actually some of of the the U.S.'s counterterrorism efforts in 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 the Sahel more broadly, like training um, uh, forces out there. But yeah, mostly Yemen, and then and then the Arab Spring happened. And so when the Arab Spring happened, that was it for me. You know, I mean, I'd been studying Arabic. Um, I'd lived in Yemen for for uh, for a short period of time, to, and uh, and I started really, really, you know, pivoting from the kind of the counterterrorism Al Qaeda franchises to covering these revolutions. And I covered, you know, the the uh, the, the the protest movement in Yemen and basically the removal of Ali Abdullah Saleh, and then what happened afterwards. Um, and Al Jazeera um, kind of, I, I started, I moved over to Al Jazeera to cover these these protest movements, and um, now they obviously were incredibly well staffed with much much more expertise than I had as this kiddo, but I did have this wild kind of gung ho, mad courage, and I, and so I started doing the really dangerous undercover stuff for them, where they were like, hey, would you like to to could we smuggle you into Syria? And they, they, uh, they, they, they liked what I'd done for them in Yemen because I had gone in and not gone on camera. I'd just been voicing pieces because I was basically kind of running around a, a collapsing regime that would have kicked me out of the country at best. Um, and so they liked that. And so they said, well, would you go to Syria? And this was the very early days of the sort of insurgency and uprising in Syria. Um, 
And that's really was sort of the next chapter in my career. I want to talk way more about Yemen and what's going on there now in a minute. We'll come back to it. But it is interesting. You've had a lot of close calls in your life because I, Marie Colvin, uh, went into Syria after you came out, was killed. I, I a friend of mine who was a SEAL um, tells a story that is a Marie Colvin story. He was, I came somewhere in Syria and they were going to do something. And he said, this door opens, this woman with an eye patch leans in and says, can I come? And he says, <laughs> he had absolutely no idea who she was. But it was this, I, I, I feel like a, a perfect metaphorical story for the, I think the boldness of the war correspondent, just trying to get from place to place and get the story. The fact that she thought nothing of opening the door to a Humvee and asking if she can get in. Right. And, and she was so experienced, you know, I mean, she had, she was, it was such a very strange close call with her. We'd never met. We never did meet. Um, she was the opposite of me. She was this incredibly uh, experienced, uh, very famous, very celebrated uh, female foreign correspondent. And I, you know, I was very lucky to be able to get into Syria so early. And it was really using uh, contacts in Beirut, a lot of them from through, through Al Jazeera. And I was, you know, for me, it was, it was, you know, a, the tragedy of Marie Colvin's death actually ended up being this very strange, grim lesson for me because I, I was, I was really, I, I was really petrified when I was in Syria, and I was so ashamed of being so afraid. Um, I was supposed to go in. I, I, mentally, I was thinking maybe a week, um, and there was the siege was really, really cracking down on on Baba Amr neighborhood in Homs. But I get to um, it takes several days to cross the border from Lebanon because we're constantly dodging um, sort of government uh, checkpoints. And also, you know, I mean, essentially Hezbollah uh, are, are, are uh, much less prevalent in the north, of course, but they're they're watching journalists to make sure that they're not crossing over. Um, and, you know, it was really, really terrifying because they I didn't realize I was so naive and I traveled alone with a camera and cash and a flak jacket. And I didn't realize that this the, the the rebels and the activists had very much overstated how, how secure their strongholds were and by the time you realize this you're in it and you can't go home and uh well i could have but i was too embarrassed to be like uh i'm 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 scared i'm leaving so i stayed and their plan they explained to me when i got to when I got into Syria and I was in sort of like roughly rebel held areas i mean like we would come across like like government checkpoints and just do a U-turn in the road. Like it was absolutely insane. There's no way I would do it now. And like, and I, and like, I mean, in a car filled with guys with guns, not even like we're really, you know, uh, under the radar. So they then eventually explained to me that the, the plan to get me in two homes into the, 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 the one neighborhood that they really controlled was to just drive me in, in one of those classic pickup trucks and hope we didn't get stopped. And so I'd wear a headscarf and, oh, they wouldn't, you know, hopefully, but if they pull us over, they will ask me for a government ID. It won't matter if I don't speak. Like they'll ask me for a government ID and then I'm totally fucked. Um, and so I just couldn't believe it when they told me this was the plan. I'd heard rumors of this big tunnel that we might use. And, and they were like, no, we're not doing it for you because you're a lone female. So it'll be easier this way. And so then they got me in and it was just incredibly obvious to me that these activists and Free Syrian Army guys 
had taken a massive risk, like the, especially the, the defectors uh, within the FSA. Like the commanders were like, well, we're basically gambling on a no-fly zone like you, like you did in Libya. And then there'll be mass defections and then we'll be fine. Then we'll have momentum. But until then, if they move before, you know, the Americans do, then, you know, we're all going to die. And I'm like, okay. Um, And I just had this real feeling that like, that I was going to get killed. And And that also, if I'm honest, that they you know, it might serve their purposes. Not that they were going to purposely kill me. I don't didn't think they were ever going to do it. They weren't worried about it. Yeah. But they weren't worried about it. Like, you know, and I, and that's, I feel like that's, that, that, that might be an unfair thing to say because there were acts of extraordinary heroism to try to get Marie Colvin's body and her injured cameraman out. And many of them were killed doing that. So, so that, that, that is um, unfair of me. But at the time I was thinking, and I was so afraid and I was so ashamed of how afraid I was because I was 27 and I thought like, you know, you're not supposed to be a chicken shit. And um, and so after several days, I did leave. Now, I'd, I'd filmed a ton of stuff. I'd gotten loads out. We did a three part series and it was a huge success. But I did feel like I had failed, you know, because the truth is. People say to you, oh, you know, you're so it's thank you for doing this work, blah, blah, blah. But the reality is that you fight for those assignments. Like that's a big deal. There's a newsroom full of people, maybe not everybody, but there's at least three or four other correspondents who are pissed off they didn't get that assignment. So when you take it, you know, you can't come home early because you were scared. So I was really worried um, that I just didn't have what it took. And then, and I was, you know, I write about this in the book. I was very shaken up. I think I clearly had 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 the wit scared out of me. And I was like looking in my hotel room <laughs> at one stage. I couldn't sleep. I got up. I was looking in the wardrobe for like Syrian agents. It was pretty bad. So I realized I needed to go on vacation. So I, I called my boyfriend at the time. He was living in London. I said, let's meet in Istanbul. Um, I just need to decompress. Uh, and that's halfway between. I, I don't care. Let's just get on a plane. And I was in my hotel room in Istanbul when the news broke that Marie Colvin had been killed. And then the activists called me on Skype to because to, they couldn't get through to the Sunday Times. And they said, wow. you know, um, we've got this body. We don't know what to do. They were they were crying. Actually, one of them was crying. So, wow. so I mean, it was a really good lesson that, like, I was trying to ignore my instincts. Um, and I was just too busy, you know, being afraid of what, you know, my, my self-image, I'm supposed yeah. to be really brave, but um, but so so I was ignoring my instincts, and it was and it was very immature, and it was a very very quick moment of growing up. I think it's who is it Daniel Kahneman that says people take take risks. People think they're brave taking risks they don't understand, and I think yeah. he he meant that. I don't know that he was necessarily applying it to our worlds, but I certainly it's something that resonated with me because I've thought a lot of times about in retrospect having done something or looking back, I thought I very easily could have been killed. And it would have been had I had I had to explain why I got killed doing that thing, I would have felt very silly because the risks were absurd. And I was, uh, you know, and maybe didn't understand the, the full weight of it. But the more you talk, the more, again, back to this idea of how I think, you know, we have some mindsets in common. We being people from my world and and war correspondents, and and the big thing is like to your point about being afraid, but also knowing how you were working through that. You, you, you know, you wanted to be there, and you, you there was this sense of you know glory is the word that we would use. It's not necessarily the way you're putting it, but 
of course, from where, where I come from, I just had this conversation with a friend of mine. Let me put it this way. I said the conversation with a friend of mine the other day and she was, um, and, and she said, how did she put it? She's like, you guys, all you guys are happy to let people thank you for your service, but you're clawing over each other to get to go do these things, you know? And she didn't mean it as an insult. She's just saying, you, you know, you love what you do. Yeah. And yes, it's dangerous. Um, but you love it. Absolutely. You love it. Um, and the truth is, yes, like, you know, it's not, it's not, it doesn't feel like a sacrifice in that moment. It feels exciting. Um, it feels incredibly purpose-driven. Uh, it's, it's, it's kind of thrilling to do something you're good at. Yeah. <laughs> it's really nice. Um, and it's really, great to push your own boundaries and uh and and i i you know i i never really i never really felt uh you know i i never really felt like i think if you're running also uh, for me there was a lot of like running away from feeling like a, a lot of inadequacy but i never felt that when i was on the road i always felt like a sort of relatively healthy sense of self-respect when I'm doing this work and not because I think I'm changing the world, but just because I think I can see, I have a, I have a, I have a role here and I have a purpose and I'm really good at it. And that is, that that's enough for a very happy existence for these series of days. Um, and it's not a really just an adrenaline risk, I mean, uh, adrenaline rush, you know, a lot of people mistake it for that, that sense of purpose and happiness that I have on the road. Like, I mean, you can have an adrenaline kind of rush. It's kind of like, you know, it can be uh, thrilling at times, but but that usually wears off very fast. Like it's, um, especially the more you do this kind of work. Um, I think it's more, yeah, I, 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 it's true. You know, I, there's a sense that um, it's not too much that the world makes sense when I'm doing this. It's that I make a lot more sense to myself when I'm doing this. Um, and it's sort of very strange because I still can't quite explain it beyond that. I think you explained it perfectly. And I'm, you know, I, 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 if, if, if this was reversed and you were, and you were talking to me, that's exactly how I would have described what I used to do. The exact same words. It's hard to give up. You know, it's very hard because your ego, you know, doesn't always let you sort of start doing something else that you're not naturally elite at. I mean, what you do, did and what many of your colleagues do, you are the best. And that's and it's not about being better than other people. It's about knowing that you're extremely good at what you do. Yeah. Um, that's really hard to give up. Yes, it is very hard to give up. It's very hard to give up the job and 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 of course, you know, the the simplicity of knowing at any given moment, you know what's important in the next ten minutes, to the next two hours. You always know what is the most important thing. There's never any distractions. You're absolutely clear. Like it's chaotic and dynamic as that world is where everything is in flux ironically or maybe not ironically maybe it makes perfect sense that you also always know what's most important and what you're doing next and that's there's, something there, yeah that's real there's real clarity you know there's, there's clarity and and that seeps into your relationships you know i mean there's no small talk there's no like there's very little social awkwardness you know i mean a lot of us foreign correspondents hide like we have sort of a there's this aura of coolness but actually we're a lot of us are very socially awkward and so um but when we're together and on the road you know like relationships are just incredibly uh uncomplicated and i find that that makes people just feel all the more kind of at home 
Um, I very much enjoy that. And we live under these little labels. It'll be like, oh, such and such Washington Post, such and such, you know, CBS and such and such PBS. And so, you know, we all have like a little label that 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 uh, that feels like a role that we all have to play. And, you know, mm-hmm. that's it's really nice and uncomplicated at times. Yeah, it, it is. And it's addicting as hell. So let's go. I mean, maybe, let's talk about Afghanistan for a minute, because so you in your book, you I think you wrote that it's, that's the war that made you um, of all your experiences. And I wonder why that war. I think it was a real. It was a real touchstone throughout my career, as it was with a lot of people's Um obviously because it was the longest uh, war in, in, in American history, but it was, it was, it, it totally sort of dotted all along the timeline, the timeline of my career and, and me kind of growing up. I mean, I went to, uh, I was 17. I was about to turn 17 when 9-11 happened. And, uh, and then I watched the, this war, you know, um, through the lens of a young kid who just, was so pissed off that she had to go to college before she could get to be a foreign correspondent and then go off and actually do what she was going to do anyway. And um, and so I watched it on TV and then I I got I got out there, you know, um, and I felt like the the young, much more self-absorbed 23-year-old version of me, 24, was like, I had I, I had been reading about these people and this sort of tribe of foreign correspondents my whole life. And now I'm here and it's true and it's real and they're really cool. And I found my people and I found, you know, what I want to do. And I just had this unbelievable interaction, like, you know, God given afternoon with Tim Page, you know, who was I mean, he was meant to be, you know, that that journalist in Apocalypse Now, like, you know, I mean, he was. He was this wild legend and he and he just, you know, talked to me about what I should do. And I I'm someone who takes direction pretty well. And I, and I remembered it. Um, and then I just kept returning to Afghanistan, you know, went back. It was the first place I ever had where I really lived there. And it was my beat, you know, like it was my I was a correspondent assigned to that one country. Um, I just had an, I had extraordinary experiences. So I went, when I went back, I was 28, 29, still pretty young, still really gung ho. Um, and then over the years going back again, as things really, really deteriorated, uh, in 28, 2019, 2020, and obviously 2021, you know, it really, it bookended so much of my career. Um, I mean, I can't, I, perhaps it's self-absorbed to say, but I can't look at, a particular point in Afghanistan's history without also seeing this kid, young woman, you know, girl growing up um, as, as a, as a person and as a journalist. I mean, this is the reality. Like, you know, you live on the road, you can't really separate who you are and your work. Um, you know, we don't come home at five 30 and close the door and sit down at the dinner table. Like this is our lives. So, so I can't help but project a little bit when I see that. The civil so much of what the company's about is engaging in hard topics and trying to see the best form of opposing arguments. And I can, I can, every, every difficult subject there is, I can engage with in what I believe to be my, the best, best effort at rationality. At least I don't feel emotionally charged, but Afghanistan instantly, uh, it, it's, it's hard for me to get all the way through. And I think part of that, just as you said, so many of us grew up in that war. I mean, it was a generation long. So 
going there, going back, going there, going back, um, and watching the the phases of the war and how you know really it was you know probably three wars in one, um, and then and then of course the way it ended is, uns- it, it, so I it's it is difficult for me to find the words to uh, how bad it was. Um, yeah, for so many of us. Um, so, I mean, I don't know where the question is there, but what, what is, you know, and I don't want to get, we're going to get into some of the bigger picture here in a second. And Afghanistan certainly plays a role in that, but, you know, what, I understand that your compulsion to talk about it because Afghanistan has now become something nobody wants to talk about. Yeah. And, and <laughs> that's really hard. Like I was there at the very end and it was horrifying. I mean, I was really, really wounded by what I saw and I, and no one wants to talk about Afghanistan. I mean, as you know, I mean, if you try to talk about it in the concepts of in the context of the politics right now, no one wants to talk about it. You know, humanitarian issues, uh, you like national security. It, it has become an unspoken thing, which I think is making that feeling worse. Absolutely true, and a great observation. Um, you know, one so my friends. One of these days, I think more of that story. Of, of course, I'm biased towards the agency. I spent a lot. You know, well, not actually not a long time there, seven years there, but, you know, seven, those were impactful years. Um, and my friends that are still there, I, you know, I, the agency, I think very rightfully is proud of their role in in trying to salvage what they did. And hopefully that story will come out one day. Um, and, you know, I and my friends, you know, and from the the guys I worked with in the Special Activities Center, you know, these are all former military guys, you know, paramilitary guys at the agency, all, you know, tough guys. And they, uh, through that experience, one, I think they're they're part of their organization, but also enormously, you know, there's an incredible respect for Bill Burns um, mm. and his leadership through that. I'm, paraf- I'm, I'm prefacing with all this to now say the staggering failure of the U.S. government in every other way is... Uh, something that just that continues to strike me and how it fell to journalists and and you know former military members to help as you did get people to process paperwork and help them get out so you write about in your book there's this moment where you like you always had this question in your mind about literally helping you know telling the story versus getting involved but you got involved in Kabul and how did that happen um you know over the years on the road, like going right back to that kid who's standing in a, you know, in a tented hospital in, in Somalia, um, you know, you're constantly aware that you have walked a tightrope your whole life between actually helping people in a practical way and like, you know, being a journalist and speaking truth to power and, you know, and holding people accountable. And and I do believe in all of that. Like, I, I believe that without the media, without, you know, a lens on the world and 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 uh, and the actions of 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 uh, of our governments, that things would be much, much worse. But it still feels very conceptual. You know, when you're standing in front of you never get to help the person in front of you. Like, I remember um you know, the, the, the New York Times reporter, um, God, Declan Walsh, another Irish reporter who was in Yemen during the famine. And he writes about how we're not allowed to give someone help if we're interviewing them. You know, I can't watch someone interview someone whose child is starving and then give them money or food. Uh, but like the reality is that's an extraordinarily dehumanizing thing t- to do. You got you got you know, you got 
food in your car. You've got, you know, some cash in your pocket. Like, and you're just so used to saying that, you know, I'm not helping this one person in front of me. And also like thinking to yourself, do I have any bloody skill sets? Like I'm not a doctor. I'm not a nurse. I'm not a water engineer, a, a pilot, you know, practical, helpful ways. Even a even a Red Cross person has a sat phone and a, and they can connect people. That's right. That's the Red Cross thing where, where they can help families that get separated. You know, useful things to the human being standing in front of you whose whose life just collapsed, you know, um, and it, it weighs on you year after year after year um, while you're building a fabulous career and you're getting all the glory and you're getting all the praise and the little gold trophies. And, you know, you, you kind of start to wonder, you know, if there's something a bit grotesque to your work. And it's and, it you know, it's only one side of your brain. The other side of your brain understands, you know, the, the, the world. But, yeah, it just sort of came to a point where I had this extraordinary power. It wasn't supposed to be because the whole system had collapsed. And when I realized that the British paratroopers in particular so the system was that they pulled the people out of the crowds. I mean, frankly, you know, you know what was happening. They only pulled people who managed to crush their way to the front of like, you know, several hundred thousand people. And so they would pull people out of the crowds. And if they got into the barren sort of hotel sorting area, their chances of getting on a flight were extraordinarily high because there was no system. People were like, OK, just push them on, push them out to the flight line and just get on the plane. Um and so, you know, I uh, realized that the the paratroopers, who I really admired, like they were being incredibly humane, like they they were horrified. Um, but they were also trying to, to like if they they were trying if 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 they couldn't secure this this uh, uh, sort of this barren complex hotel area, then they then the whole thing would collapse. So they did have to hold people back. But I, you know, would go to them and sometimes the Marines at the front and just negotiate. But like that person, that person, please, can they come in? You know, and there was this one like kind of I mean, if I mean, it, it, there was this one. It was sort of like a movie. There was this one amazing like Canadian kind of retired Canadian uh, former Special Forces guy who was running his own security company. Like, you know, what Cabo was like back then. It was all sorts of cast of characters. But he had stayed and he was running around with lists of people diving into the crowd. And somehow he had persuaded the Brits to let him do it. And the British officers were like, OK, fine. You know, but they they knew it had to be sort of secretive because otherwise everyone would rush the gate. And yeah. so we had people like we had people putting their, you know, just very crass, simple things like they just do their live location on WhatsApp and I would guide them. And then I would tell them to put like a thing on their hat head or whatever. But it just became like the point of where suddenly I had this ridiculous power that I hadn't realized that I could pull people out of the crowd and essentially get them on an airplane. And that was wild to me. It shouldn't have been the case. I'm not an immigration official, but, you know, I just, what what am I going to like be, you know, in my deathbed when I'm 80 thinking, well, it's a good job. I stuck to the rules and didn't help any of those people, you know, like I just, you know, there's so much, uh, there's so many moments in your career when you're at the coal face of history. And I don't mean that sounds kind of melodramatic, but it is true. Um, you know, you're in revolutions, you're in uprisings and wars where you do have to decide, you know, am I a human being first or a journalist first, you know, and sometimes those things change. Um, and I just, you know, I just want to do the right thing. Um, and I've never regretted. In fact, I've thought I've looked back. I, I, I was very upset after the fall of Kabul. Like I was I took several months and I was just very shocked by the experience. 
And I, you know, I felt very, very terrified. I hadn't helped enough people. Um, and I never looked back and thought, you know, regretted a single action. You know, like you have to be a human being before you are any kind of professional. Yeah, that's part of what still frustrates me the most. Like anywhere I've ever been, anything I've ever done, the one thing that I wouldn't wish on anyone is to be a 19-year-old Marine or soldier on the gate. Yeah. Telling people no. I just, that, that the, situ the situation there that the U.S. government put them in is horrible. Uh, I mean, the moral injury, I mean, I did a story where I interviewed the uh, pastor who was with the Marines, and she said she was getting three to four hours of sleep a night because everybody was so horrified they needed to talk to her. They needed, like, religious counsel in the middle of that. Um, and the British, the Brits were the same, you know, they, they were kids, they were like you know, teenagers pushing back women and children yeah. back into the Taliban. And and I know that this shouldn't matter, but it does. Everybody spoke English, you know, so people are like, hey, can you please help me? And I know that it shouldn't matter, but like it does change, like, you know, because your brain turns when someone says, excuse me, would you excuse me, ma'am? Like and and so they were dealing with people who were pleading with them in English, you know, um, and I and I think that that shouldn't matter, but but it does make a difference. So let's in the time we have left, let's let's solve the problems of geopolitics and media today. Excellent. You know, this year, 80 some countries are going to have national elections and multi billions of people are going to vote. Mm -hmm. Wars in the Middle East and NATO's eastern flank. We have an election. Um, and we've come to a moment in the international system that, you know, you could trace it back from wherever, but say trace it back to 9-11. 9-11 happens, we invade Iraq, destabilize Iraq, leave Iraq, further destabilize Iraq, rise of ISIS, Syria, Arab Spring. Um, the red line, Crimea, Ukraine, Israel, Gaza. So I wondered if you could take us on the journey from your view and start wherever, but maybe in the past you've talked about starting from the red line, but wherever, wherever you'd like. I mean, look, there's there's obviously a number of brewing uh, serious risks right now. One of them is, you know, the the political divide in the United States, American democracy being, um, and I agree with you that that hyperbole has been abused to such an extent that. Um, that everyone sort of everyone sort of has been prescribing their own little crisis for a very long time. So so it is hard to to get kind of uh, a sense of of the fact that it really is here. But I would say that is a major crisis right now. How divided Americans are, um, how little regard uh, you know certain certain uh, segments of, of of society have for one another. Um, uh, I would I would say though one thing that's very much so undercovered and is not and is really frightening me is the kind of manifestation of what I think started in 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 uh, 2013 with the red line and I and I know obviously the the, the invasion of Iraq was a major and you know and 9/11 like these were massive massively important moments of instability but I don't really think the I don't really think we'll look back and say, well, that's where the liberal world order shook. Actually, I don't. I think it'll be 2013. I think it'll be Obama blinking. And the reason is, obviously, you know, the emboldenment of of, of uh, Putin 
you know, um, entering, uh, uh, taking Crimea, entering Syria. But there was something, there's something no one's really talking about that really, really unnerves me, which is an extraordinary level of normalization and acceptance of mass atrocities. You know, what happened in Syria tested a taboo. You know, what Assad was allowed to do to his own people. I mean, what are we, half a million dead? And or, or we stopped counting years ago. And, you know, obviously some of those are casualties from the other side. But but the level, I'm very concerned by the level of um, tolerance for mass casualties, um, for huge atrocities. I know that, you know, war crimes have, have happened, you know, pretty much uninterrupted throughout human history. But the fact that we no longer even bother to call them that or, you know, we're no longer outraged. I mean, remember Srebrenica? That was what, you know, several, less than 10,000 people, you know, and not to not to to diminish the tragedy of that. But, you know, what used to scandalize and disgust us and evoke a response hasn't for years. And I think that the psychological impact on that by dictatorships or on dictatorships is really dangerous. I think we're seeing it everywhere. I mean, in Yemen, you know, uh, I, you know, however you view the Houthis versus the Saudis, the, the conduct of the war meant that a famine was acceptable. And it used to piss me off that the death toll, you know, the casualty rate would be running at like people would keep repeating this very old figure that didn't seem didn't seem credible anymore. Fifteen thousand dead, seventeen thousand dead. But the United Nations found four hundred thousand children under five dead from preventable diseases and, and, and starvation. Now, Yemen was always very poor, but they 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 counted that from excess dead as opposed to you know casualty rates because of Yemeni poverty pre-war. So, you know, and now with Gaza, you know, like how whatever your politics are and however justified going to war in Gaza was, you know, both morally and legally, the conduct of war has completely um, run away from any kind of sense of, of even if you don't care about the laws of war, even if you think the ICC is full of shit and the Geneva, Geneva Conventions are ridiculous, we live in a post-scandal world now where that won't stick to you. There'll be no repercussions. You'll be fine. I think that's really, really dangerous for the liberal world order as well. You know, I mean, I know that it sounds naive, but, you know, American leadership in the world you know, it, it, even from from a from the standpoint of of a very very flawed implementation of human rights uh, around the world, and kind of the you know the at least the rhetoric of wanting to push slightly more democratic institutions in and around and freedoms around the world, I think we've had a growing sense of cynicism of that for decades. Uh, because of a lot of hypocrisy, but frankly, you know, uh, what what has become a total absence of that has made the world a really scary place. And I've talked to a lot of my friends who are ultra liberal on the left. And you're like, well, America has no has no business telling people what to do. And why should America lead the UN? And it's not fair. And I'll say, well, agreed, you know, uh, technically, that's not fair. You know, it is this is a power structure after all. But, you know, Putin and China and what they're doing to the Uyghurs and what they're doing to the Ukrainians and just uh, invading countries, that scares me more than, you know, America's in charge and it's not fair. It's a great way to put it. I want to represent the the view of what I would a Trump voter. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the, my my a, a stereotype, a persona of a Trump voter. 
mm-hmm. which is so you to you to the whoever they're talking not you jane but you and this is the photo looking out sure took us to war in 2001 and then 2003 in iraq iraq was an epic disaster trillions of dollars spent how many lives lost destabilized i don't understand why it is i don't understand why it is unreasonable to ask why can't europe defend ukraine and why can't israel take care of it why do we have to do it what what where are the institutions what have they done for us i'm looking back now at the last 20 years and i don't understand it's a reasonable i mean we you know it, it, it's it is a on an individual level it's a rational thing to say and think and feel especially given that those communities um are those who disproportionately do the fighting and dying um in american wars uh i think that part of the problem is that there's never really been any accountability for what went wrong in those wars. You know, people are asked to give up their sons and daughters to go to war, and there's never any accountability for disastrous decisions. Um, and, you know, a lot of, a lot, you know, as we saw through like the cigar reports in, in, in Afghanistan, a lot of like, you know, covering things up and, and trying to hide things from those people. They don't feel like the, their government is transparent with them about war. I think one thing that gets lost in the conversation is that America is not fighting in, in Ukraine. You know, um, we are the, the the Ukrainians are doing the fighting and dying. And obviously, any 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 danger of sending U.S. troops is is a huge concern to everybody for many different reasons, whether it's for geopolitical reasons or or personal reasons. But you know, I think that there's a sense that America is fighting for Ukraine that I don't think is fair. So I do think we, we we need to get accurate about that. Also, the money spent on the weapons, like those are American manufactured weapons. So, you know, right. So like we're not sending shiploads of of cash to Ukraine. We're 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 basically uh paying our own companies to send those weapons. Um but of course, someone would quite rationally say, well, that's a military industrial complex. And, and that, that's a very fair point, too. Um, but moreover, beyond all of this, I mean, honestly, I think the difficulty is that the war in Ukraine makes so much more sense from a global peace perspective than the war in Iraq and Afghanistan ever did. You know, I mean, the threat, the threat to, you know, having, uh, you know, secure border uh, uh, borders in, in Europe. You're basically Russia invading Eastern Europe is more of a threat to the world order than Al Qaeda ever were. Um, and that's really hard to tell communities that thought Al Qaeda were the big threat for, for, for years and years and years. And we're told that, you know, and Al Qaeda were a threat, certainly. I mean, like terror attacks were, were very real. But but this uh, like this is an ex- existential fight for what is the liberal world order. Um, and, and so that, that, you know, that's a really big conceptual conversation, but it's, that is the most accurate one here. It's a, it's a hard sell. Admittedly, um, that the, the current defending the current state is, is essential <laughs> and, and the current state can be, can be flawed. Um, yeah. but the current international defending the current national state is essential and it's, um, and we need, I think, to communicate that better. And this gets us into media a little bit. So last thing before we go, what is the, how do we, I, I'll give you, I will, I will talk about my take on how we solve media, but what is, what is your take on how we solve media? 
Uh, I think whenever we look back, well, look, you know, the dying old news networks are never coming back. Like the true, like the way people used to absorb news is not coming back. I think, I think part of the problem is going to, you know, that, that needs to be sort of solved is separating opinion from news. Um, and I know that sounds sort of obvious and on the nose, but like that, that's sort of where the soul went wrong. You know, we had a lot of, a lot of young people come up thinking, that journalism is actually like activism and journalism is advocacy and it's using your platform to say something and it's trying to make a difference. And, and it's actually none of those things. And actually it's antithetical to any of those things. So I think that our very concept of what news is has, has been damaged. Um, and so I think more of a focus on, on hard news um, and then obviously like the tribalism, you know, I mean, people are just settled into uh, extreme viewpoints uh, and a lot of a lot of yelling at one another. Nobody's really listening. Um, another way to solve journalism is to stop basically, you know, only hiring people from certain geographies and backgrounds and socioeconomic cultures like, you know, I mean, journalism has gotten super posh rate lately, like, you know, in, in the in the sort of 15 years I've been on the road it's becoming more and more, uh, you know, the uh, a very, very well-to-do kind of career. You know, I don't have a lot, like the higher you rise in the ranks of journalism and, uh, you know, and people get very defensive when I say this, but it's true. Like the higher you rise, the more you look around and you don't see a lot of working class backgrounds. Um, and, I, you know, that that's just part of life. But I do think that that massively impacts coverage uh, and, and impacts the kind of civility uh, of conversation. Yeah, true. Last question. What do you think is going to happen in 2024? The election politics. Oof. I was just actually out with journalists last night talking about this. I think that. I think that if it's Biden, Trump, Trump will win. Uh uh, I think Biden is likely to lose a lot of young voters um, based on some of his policies. Certainly the war in gas, I don't think is helping him with with a lot of the 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 young, more progressive left in the in the party. I think their likelihood of just not voting is getting very high. I mean, they're not going to go off and vote for Trump. I think unless there is, I mean, the 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 reality is that that um however much both sides kind of like argue back and forth, you know, most people who are Democrats will admit that they're very that you know that they're nervous about Biden's health. So if we have an incident where there's a falling off a stage or a falling over or something, I think that could could potentially you know end his campaign. But otherwise, you know he's 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 determined to run. And if he does, I do think that that Trump wins. Um, again, I think well, I've never lived through a political environment where everyone's sort of sitting around thinking, well, maybe it won't be certain if there's some sort of medical emergency on either side or there's some sort of scandal or, or Trump goes to jail. Right. Like, I mean, people are right. sitting around waiting for Frost an act of God, <laughs> an act of God. Like, so then I think I think Trump wins. And I think what's really, really concerning for me is that neither side is is likely to respect, like neither side will view that as their president. And I think that's what's really, really, you know, I think we'll see a huge amount of civil unrest if Trump wins. And and I think that that that's uh, that that's that's, you know, really, really concerning for, for the country. And beyond that, I also think that I mean, look, we're at a time where 
Um, the testing of American resolve started a decade ago, but it's only going to ramp up. I mean, I, I really think that, you know, this is when you when you think of how global leaders are watching America right now, they are, you know, they're they're waiting to see, you know, if Trump becomes the president, how will they respond to to uh to, you know, how, how, would the, how will they kind of gamble what his response would be to their own actions? Everybody's going to make that calculation, whether you're Mohammed bin Salman or, you know, the Iranians or or the Russians. Everybody is is going to be watching. And, and they um, and uh, and I think that, you know, what we've seen is a lot of people testing American resolve and, and being quite surprised by the results. Um, well, quite surprised which way. Um. In terms of uh, in terms of when it comes to uh, American pushback, you know, with 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 Ukraine, I think that the uh, so far, I think Putin's been pretty surprised. I don't I think he made the calculation that America would step back. I mean, obviously, his biggest miscalculation was how the Ukrainians would respond. But I don't think he thought that uh, that you would have such a unity in NATO suddenly out of nowhere and in Europe. Um, I think that really surprised them. I think um, in terms of, you know, actions uh, by the Iranians, I think they feel like they haven't had much pushback at all. Um, and so I do think that there's that there is a sense uh, of being able to get away with certain with certain uh, actions, you know, but that that American isolationism in the Middle East is is very much so something that uh, that they can that they can continue to count on, especially you know when, what we saw in 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 Afghanistan and and in places uh, like uh, like Yemen. Um, okay, truly last question. You are a professor at Princeton, um, or you're teaching a class at Princeton. I I want I would love to have your take on what it's like on college today, especially in wake of uh, the hearing with um, where President Gay and President McGill now both resigned. What's it like on campus? Well, the truth is that at Princeton, and not to shirk the question, like it's just it's it's a much less political environment. Um, you know, a lot of people came to me during the protest, sort of uh, brouhaha on at at at, at uh, Harvard and all the other places, and, and 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 Columbia here, and we never really had much of that at Princeton. Like, I mean, it's sort of sometimes I kind of. I kind of wish my students were a little bit more kind of, you know, um, politically engaged more broadly. Like, I, you know, I, I try to get them to debate in class and it's a small seminar. And so they and I'm always like, look, it's off the record. Nobody can film or record like this should be you know, a safe space for you to talk. And I really want you to and I want you to counter argue with one another. But I, I think that there has for a long time on campuses been a chilling effect on I mean. It, very obvious chilling effect on conservative voices. So the sense of watching what you say has been going on for years, um, and not un, not unjustifiably. I do think that those those opinions, uh, you know, in the past have been have been censored. I think that nowadays it's sort of interesting because we're seeing a pushback against what many people view as the other side. And so I think a lot of people are just kind of keeping their heads down, and I think that's sad. You know, I think it does have a chilling effect for um, civil discourse, you know. Um, but the irony, I think, is that students on campuses are more likely to have really extreme um, uh, protests and shouting matches 
if they're not talking in class. You know, civil discourse is, you know, face to face. You're not going to be you're, you're much less likely to be obnoxious to someone's face um, than, you know, if you're high on righteousness at some big, big, big uh, protest. So, you know, I do I do think that 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 is a, is a real shame. Um, and and it's it's difficult because these kids can now be named and shamed. I mean, we didn't have that in college. Like, I mean, when I was in college, like stupid yeah. politics was what it was for, you know? So every, there was always someone who was an anarchist or, or right. a Marxist in college. Like, I mean, embarrassing extreme politics was a rite of passage because right. it was a part of understanding the world and, you know, and learning and trying to feel like, you know, and, and, and experimenting with the sense of outrage and injustice and, you know, that was all a part of growing up, but now it's so embedded in people's identities that it's it's right. you know I think that 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 that's really stifling a lot of conversations and and that's a real shame you know I like when I mean in the midst of all of these conversations nobody's talked about I know it's kind of dorky but what about debate societies didn't people used to debate you know we used to you know make them argue each other's points and then flip. Um, right. And that doesn't really exist anymore. And I, and I, I think that 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 what we're seeing right now is as a result of years and years of kind of degrading um, civil discourse because you know people are afraid of being canceled. You've I, I can't remember if I read it or you said it or maybe you said it multiple times, but you've talked about the um, how morality bends, you know, mm-hmm. and the gray areas of the world, and that is you know another. It's something I've thought about in recent years as I as I've found myself, you know, agreeing with with, um, you know, journalists I've read throughout the years that have, you know, that I read in 2010 when I was in Afghanistan and and, and wrote things that were critical of the agency and things I viscerally disagreed with. And but now we're at this strange point where it seems like and again, I keep coming back to this, how and maybe that's that is a, another common thread is this sense of the gray and this ability to operate in the gray and how morality bends. And and maybe it is it's not I and everyone I worked with at the agency were perfectly comfortable in the gray. And and the fact that where you are born is going to have an incredible impact on what side you're on and what you think. And I mean, even if Afghanistan, it, it could be a matter of 10 miles north or south. Taliban or government of Afghanistan, but in but still in that environment, be able to do your job and conduct the war. And it's 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 a little bit different there because doing your job is, you know, fighting your adversary. But there also there wasn't a sense of I mean, there certainly were were I was going to say that there's no sense of hate, like we didn't hate the adversaries, an intensely personal war. And that's one of the things that I think a lot about, too, for us, you know, going back to the same place for 20 years, your, your adversary is also growing up with you. So mm-hmm. there are names that we knew that I've known forever with the Taliban and Siraj Khani being a big one. And speaking of, of, you know, people that I, I do think, you know, Siraj Khani is a legitimately bad person, but it doesn't mean that um, everyone in the leadership structure there is not just a, res, you know, like me, a result of where we're born and where you come up. Um, but the war was intensely personal in that we knew names, you know, we knew the names of the Taliban cell leaders and the fighters and Al Qaeda. And in many cases, they knew our names. And that's just an interesting experience and an intensely gray experience. That deep comfort in the gray is something that seems so lacking, again, partly as a result of today's media environment. Part of it is structural because everything being recorded today, people pull back. So some of it is just the technology forcing this, but some of the other big ideological currents seem to be 
at play as well. So um, anyway, that's I guess that was not a question. That was some thoughts. It's interesting, though, like you're describing a sort of sort of strangely intimate experience with your enemy. Um, uh, I think that part of the the lack of gray, I mean, it's pretty obvious that we don't have a lot of context in, in news anymore. You know, I mean, what I've done most of my the last 10 years of my career is, you know, magazine length work. So like 12 minute pieces where we've got context and this character and this character and all this history. I mean, there isn't really a lot of space for that anymore. Um, maybe in documentary film, but uh, but certainly not in news. Um, yeah, we have tiny lenses. I also think, you know, it's natural that those who fight wars are always going to be, no matter how healthy the society back home and the, the media landscape back home, they always live in the gray area because because that's the the cruelty of war, right? I mean, you you know, you're supposedly defending a certain set of 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 values but sometimes you have to break those values um in order to do that so so that's always going to be there but but it's compounded now by the fact that back home we have this extraordinary sort of moral clarity right um, you know right. where you know everyone is viewing things through a moral lens which also is one of the reasons that we don't you know it's it's a wonderful way of never having to actually talk to to people who who you don't hate because they're deplorables and they're bad people and so we don't talk to bad people um as opposed to their people with very a different you know viewpoint from ours um so i do think that there's a sense of moral clarity that, that when it comes to global politics People uh, are, are, I get a bit frustrated when people see the world as they wish it to be, as opposed to how it is. Um, and whenever you're out in the world, whether you're a diplomat or a soldier um, uh, or the in-between, like, you know, you you have to meet the world as it is, you know, like, uh, you know, I mean, it's a silly example, but, you know, I mean, if I'm going to go, I'm not going to, to to suddenly turn a bunch of men in, you know, uh, irritable into feminists. And, you know, I, I don't have time to 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 deal with gender issues when I'm simply trying to negotiate access to something else. Right. And so, you know, I mean, we can't we can't try to um, we can't try to moralize our way through what are logistical issues in, in many ways. Um, and I think that that has totally shaped conversations right now. People are are more than ever put in good and bad boxes. And once you've made someone an immoral person, like a bad person, um, you kind of don't really feel any obligation to deal with them. And you don't take any responsibility for being so tribal and so absolutely um, grounded in your, in your, um, in your viewpoints, I mean, it's so interesting to me because I live in New York City. I teach at one of the most elite universities in the world. Um, I, you know, a lot of people presume I have the same viewpoints as them. And so, and I'm always a foreign correspondent. I'm always kind of like sitting around and people will be like, you know, saying something to me and I'll be like, aha. And like a lot of people forget that I'm just this little redneck from Ireland. And so, like, and they'll be like, well, you know, all of those people who vote for Trump, I mean, they're just bad people. You know, people will actually voice these things. Like they'll actually say this sort of stuff out to dinner. And like, and it's just so interesting to me, you know, uh, how how much prejudice is is a, is permissible because we've 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 decided that we're morally, you know, better than. Um, and I think that that is what's really, really, you know, impacting politics here, but also how we see the rest of the world. You know, why are we dropping bombs on Yemen? Because it's terrible to drop bombs on Yemen and bombs are horrible and they kill people. And admittedly, 
you know, I've done years and years of reporting about how awful the war in Yemen is and how much, uh, you know, the, the, the Saudis have been, you know, flouting international laws that are killing loads of people unnecessarily. But I'm not going to, but I, I, I do have a more nuanced view of, you know, well, look, you know, I mean, the Houthis have poked the bear here on purpose and, you know, they ha- this has to evoke a response. And so, yeah, I do think a, a lot of those, a lot of those old school conversations about, about realistic international uh, policy ha- have been lost in, in, in a sort of echo chamber here. I mean, I go to, I go, go to schools now and, and talk a lot about journalism. And a lot of the time, the, the questions that, that the kids ask me are very often through the prism of uh, racial justice. You know, they'll be like, well, how does it feel? You know, how do people respond to you when you are like a white reporter in Yemen? And and, I, and I'll be like, well, they 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 see me as like a foreigner in Yemen and like a Westerner. But they don't really we don't really they have like sit down and have big racial discussions. So, so a lot of people in America aren't real, aren't really aware that the rest of the world is not having the same conversations yeah. that they're having. So, um, so yeah, I do think that really impacts how America is looking out at the world. You know, that's that, that real sense of, of moral, moral uh, sort of moralizing. And so, yeah, I, I don't think it, it really helps with policy. That's all br- perfectly and brilliantly put and explains exactly what Sybil's trying to do. Jane, a real pleasure. Thank you so much. And um, I hope we do this again. This was great. Likewise. Thanks. It was really fun.